0: The following message is brought to you by Baltimore Bible Church. For more information about this ministry, please visit us online at www.baltimorebiblechurch.org. So now let's open our Bibles and follow along as we loose the scriptures and let them speak. Well, uh, today I get to introduce you to another one of my dear friends and uh uh, fellow ministers uh, in the gospel of Jesus Christ, uh, Dr. Lance Quinn. Uh, Lance Quinn serves as, uh, on the pastoral team at Grace Emmanuel Bible Church in Jupiter, Florida, as the executive vice president and chief operating officer of the Expositor Seminary. And, uh, if you have any questions about that, what that means, you can just ask him afterwards. What is the chief operating officer at the Expositor Seminary? Uh, he's been in ministry for over thirty-five years. He's also on the uh, the board of uh, uh, ACBC, Association of Certified Biblical uh, Counselors. Uh, he's written a book that uh, some of you are aware of, uh, God the Preacher and the Apologist. If you're looking uh, for that book, we do have some copies uh, in our. Uh, 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 fellowship hall they'll be there after the service so you can make your way over there if you'd like to uh, get one of those books and uh, i'm sure he'll sign it for you if you uh, if you ask him nicely Uh, but uh, we're just very grateful for him Uh, uh, lance and his uh, late wife beth have had eight children his uh, uh, the original eight is enough uh, lance quinn uh, having eight children and a growing number of uh, of grandchildren and uh, we're very grateful for having him here uh, with us today Um, uh, there's a kind of a you know, humorous statement that floats around uh, of uh, pastors being asked, you know, how's how's the ministry, brother? And uh, the pastor responds, you know, hey, ministry's going great. If it wasn't for those sheep, if it, if it wasn't for the congregation, you know, ministry would just be perfect, you know. Uh, and there's uh, there are shepherds, unfortunately, that don't smell like the sheep. You know, they love the preaching. You know, they love their study. They don't love the people to whom they preach. And uh, I just know my brother Lance here is a, is a minister who, who loves his sheep. He loves people. And uh, I was there for his last day uh, back at the Bible Church of, of Little Rock uh, when he was called to do another ministry out at uh, Grace Community Church in California. And I watched this dear brother greet every member of the church, men, women, children. Embracing them with tears coming down his face and kissing each one on the the cheek and just expressing a a personal word of uh, Gratitude and uh, thanksgiving to God for them. Uh, So I watched this brother care for the sheep and uh, I remember um, uh, After he left uh, that ministry in Arkansas that we served at together and you know, sometimes I'll ask him, you know Hey, you know, what do you miss about, you know, being there? I mean, that's your home state Arkansas What do you miss about Arkansas? The first thing that comes out of his mouth is the people. I miss the people because he's a person who loves people. He loves the sheep. And, uh, and this is a person who's taught me uh, personally uh, by his words and by his example uh, that we're not just preachers, that we're pastors, that we're shepherds and that the shepherds need to smell like the sheep and uh, that we do sheep work. Uh, so I'm just very grateful for this brother. Come on up and uh, minister uh, to his brother.
1: thank you so very much my friend maybe the greatest thing i could say is that pastor george lawson is my friend it's my privilege to know him and his dear wife and his family and and you as well i was really not supposed to be in the pulpit preaching right now i've already spoken once here And my dear friend and uh, fellow pastor, Jerry Ragg, was supposed to be here, and that's probably the name that you're seeing before you, and I'm not him. Uh, Jerry uh, got sick this week, and he was not able to be here, sinus infection and a chest cold, and so he had to stay back uh, in Jupiter, Florida, so when i arrived uh, george said you'll be preaching a second time and i said yes sir have bible will travel i have preached a message just a couple of weeks ago from the pulpit uh, of grace emmanuel bible church in jupiter florida and i thought it would be perfect for this context It is the sufficiency of Scripture in temptations and trials, from James chapter 1. So I'd like to invite you to turn in your Bibles to that place in God's Word, James chapter 1, which for so many of us, you may have heard that this New Testament epistle of James is like the Proverbs of the New Testament, It is filled with wisdom, filled with knowledge about the Christian life, and James chapter 1 is no different. I've been thinking a lot about temptations and trials, what Christian doesn't, because life is filled with them, and if I could be very personal as I start… It was, of course, not in this location because you are nomadic and your 14 different location exodus has made me follow you through all of those places. I'm just glad I found you recently. But this, this people, not this place, but this people... You are very near and dear to my heart because it was on December 2nd of 2017 that I received that call that no one wants, and that is from my own dear wife saying, something's terribly wrong, I've gone to the emergency room, I'll call you back when I get some word, something is terribly wrong." She had been incredibly healthy through all of the years of our marriage, even as we ministered with George and Jennifer as co-laborers in the pastorate in Little Rock, Arkansas, and all the years prior to that and all the years after that. She's the bearer of my eight children. She was so active all the time, every day. I can say this with honesty. I don't remember ever in 33 and a half years ever even seeing her take a nap. She saw me take many naps. <laughs> and on that December 2nd of 2017 time frame when she did call back, she said they've done a scan both of my chest and my brain and I have serious cancer. She was incredibly healthy. And I spoke to George on the phone and I said, from my hotel room, can you pick me up and take me back to the airport? I was going to be preaching the very next morning to you. And he graciously took me to the airport and I had the longest plane ride of my life about 3 in the morning I was picked up by one of my sons and was taken by him to the hospital and I walked into the hospital room and we embraced in love we kissed each other and we hugged and prayed and cried and kissed and hugged and prayed and cried and kissed and i prayed that the lord would do a miracle when you hear those words, "Stage four: B cancer." It can't get any worse a news than that. So when we began the arduous regimen of treatment, surgeries, chemotherapy, thank you for praying, we had such prayer support. And yet the Lord wanted her to go be with himself. So for two years and four months, the Lord gave us time as a family together and as a church family together. And the Lord gave us an opportunity to watch a very, very godly woman come to die. And on March 30th of twenty twenty. At 4:40 pm, a very disconsolate husband and very weeping children watched Beth Quinn take her last breath. You've probably go- gone through experiences like that yourself. It was hard. it was disconcerting. it was challenging. But for those who are in Christ, you know their eternal destiny. And as she did take that last breath, she was instantly in the presence of Jesus Christ, her Savior. And that was one of many trials... The most challenging for me personally and you perhaps have had other kinds of challenges in your life they may not have been the loss of a spouse but you undoubtedly like i do have daily trials daily temptations and we need god's word to give us answers sometimes those answers are things like why why, why is this happening in the first place, God? What are what are you doing? What's the plan? Why now? Can there be some other plan? Are you sure, Lord? Is this best? Can I? overcome such a trial? Are you hearing my prayers? How come some of my prayers are answered and others not? You see, all of us face the challenge that if we are redeemed, if we're believers, if we know Christ, We know that the Bible teaches us that temptations and trials shall come. They are an inevitable truth of the Christian life. And because of that, we need to know how to handle them. And we need God's sufficient Word to give us answers about the whys and wherefores. And James 1 is a great place to go. And I've spent a lot of time thinking through this passage of Scripture, and I want to share with you what I've learned. Is that fair enough? If you want an outline for the message this afternoon, it is encased with four incredibly important words, English words for us, three of them in the Greek text of the New Testament, but four separate English words that we really need to understand. And here they are. Number one, temptations. Number two, trials. Number three, desires. And number four, tests. Temptations, trials, desires, and tests. And believe it or not, all of those English words are in our context of James chapter 1, and we need to understand them, because encased within those four English words are definitions and understandings that will allow us, when those things come into our lives, they will allow us to understand who God is and what God is doing and who we are and what we are to do. You can't get any more practical than that. It's the opportunity for us to understand what God's Word says about temptations and trials and desires and tests. Why do they come? When shall they come? What do I do when they come? These are very important practical truths. And this sufficient Scripture shares with us, and particularly in James chapter 1, why We have these challenges of the Christian life and what to do about it. Notice James chapter 1 beginning in verse 2. I'm reading from the English Standard Version, the ESV. James chapter 1 verse 2, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet various trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. Some of your translations may say perseverance. And let steadfastness or perseverance have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, And then go to verse 12. "'Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil.' And he himself tempts no one, but each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers." Now, as the, I have read those to you, you know that those four words that make up our outline are all there. Temptations, trials, desires, tests. And I believe in a sense, understanding those four words and the principles behind them will give us an answer regarding these things that we all face, large or small, small. And so let's dig in, and in a way to dig in, I want to actually sort of go backwards, starting at the back end of what we've just read, and then move our way back to chapter 1, verse 2 and following. Because I mentioned to you that there are three words in the Greek text of the New Testament that actually give us these four words— And that means that the first word in the Greek New Testament actually has two different meanings, depending on the context. And that particular word in the Greek New Testament is the word parasmas, parasmas. Now maybe the form of that word will change a little bit in a particular part of speech in the Greek New Testament, just like in English, but that particular sort of dictionary definition word parosmos is actually a word that in its context can either mean temptations or trials. It's the same word. There's not a, a different word here that's trying to teach us or tell us when do we know when it's a temptation and when do we know when it's a trial? If you were a Greek reader of the New Testament and you read that word parasmos, you'd have to say, but when do I know? Well, when do I know this is a temptation to avoid as over against a test to pass? And the context must tell us And if you look at verses 13, 14, 15, and 16 of James 1, you're going to say, like I am, this is a very negative context. Look back at verse 13. Let no one say when he is... And what's the next word? Tempted. Okay, that means that that word tempted, which is the Greek word parasmos, is by the translators of this Bible, the ESV, and also in the NASB, that means that those translators who are translating from the original Greek New Testament into the receptor language, which is our language, English, they believe that it is a negative context because they're translating it with that word Tempted. And that's a bad word. That's a negative context. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, second use of that word, for God cannot be tempted, third use of that word, with evil, and he himself tempts no one fourth use of that word verse 14 but each person is tempted there it is again when he is lured and enticed by his own desire so within a matter of just a couple of sentences we have this repeated word tempted and that should signal for us in this negative context that some biblical principles need to be stated, and James does that. And the first thing that he does for our purposes is to defend the character of God. And how does he do that? He says this, if anyone is tempted, however they are tempted, we're not told. We're not told what's the specific of the temptation. What is it? It's not given to us. But what he wants to say is this, let no one when he is tempted say this, I am being tempted by whom? So that's an affirmation and a defense of the very character of God. You say, how so? Think of it like this, and if you want to write it down, you can. God never solicits anyone to do evil. God never solicits anyone to do evil. He doesn't want to lure you into a tempting track of sin and misery. That's not who our God is. God's character, James believes, needs to be defended here. And why? Well, perhaps... When you and I are in a ferocious kind of situation and and we're looking for answers, we might say as some people do, this must be coming as a temptation from God himself. What is he up to? What is he doing? Why is he treating me this way? Or if you're Flip Wilson, the devil made me do it. So... These persons in the universe, God Himself or Satan, uh, they must be battling things out, and it's either Satan trying to do it, solicit solicit me to do evil, or it might even be God. And James says, Don't you believe it? The character of God is pristine, perfect. He's never lied. He's never tried to dump you and me in the grease. Never once. He doesn't play those games. God is perfect. He's flawless. He's loving. He's gracious. He's holy. And he never solicits anyone to fall flat on their face by tempting them to respond sinfully, to what he's doing. James wants to make that point extremely clear. In fact, he says not only can no one say that they are being tempted by God, God himself cannot be tempted with evil. It is impossible for our God to be solicited by anything or anyone to do evil himself. And so we cannot blame him. So at three o'clock in the morning in a hospital room in Thousand Oaks, California, I cannot in a seething rage say, who are you, God? Why have you done such a thing? I hold you accountable! you are not fair, you are arbitrary, you are capricious, you are unloving and unkind to take her away from me. Some people respond that way. And Christians can at times, in losing the principle that God solicits no one to do evil, can sometimes say things like that too. And when they do, they need to be rebuked by this passage because it clearly says, you can't say I'm being tempted by God and God himself cannot be tempted. So the first thing that you and I need to understand about that word temptation is that god can be trusted because he's not the one soliciting us to do evil thinking or deeds he can be trusted he must be trusted he can only as the one of the universe who can be trusted don't don't look at him with insolent pride You have to look to him as your only hope. So, if that's true about temptations, you said, Lance, that that same word, parasmos, actually could also be translated in another word, and that's our second word, and that's the word trials. Now, we're not playing word games. The Bible makes it clear with one Greek word that there are such things as temptations and there are such things as trials. And though God does not solicit us to be tempted to do evil or to think evil or to be evil persons, God does take us through trials. Look back at chapter 1 verse 2 count it all joy, my brothers, that is brothers and sisters, when you meet trials. Guess what? That's the word parasmos. You see, the context will let you know, is this a temptation to avoid or is this a trial to undergo? And it tells us very clearly, you and I are going to meet trials, plural, of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness or perseverance, or your translation may be endurance. Now, we're actually being given a gift. And this is where the sufficiency of scripture comes in. We are given by God the gift of the knowledge that when trials come into our lives of various kinds and of whatever measure and intensity, it is for the production of steadfastness, endurance, a kind of, a kind of kindness in a very strange way. Because none, none of us, we don't sign up for it, do we? We don't say like some masochist, bring it on! Bring all of the worst kinds of trials in my life because I love them so. We don't say that. We're real people. We're, we're everyday ordinary folks. We're not asking for the hammer to come down. We're not trying to say, bring it on, brother. I'll be able to withstand just about anything. Yeah, it's that just about anything that gets you almost every time. And again, we're not playing word games. We're not saying, well, it's just the difference between the two words that start with a T, temptations and trials. No. The whole thing is different. The whole concept is different. The whole idea is different. In fact, it's it's the matter of total opposites. What's happening with, with temptations? It's all designed to bring you down. It's all designed to destroy you. It's all designed to make you miserable, and it's not for steadfast purposes. It's so that you would fall. It's so that you would crater to the idea of accusing God himself that he's not fair. That he doesn't know what he's doing. That he isn't loving because these temptations that come into my life, in whatever form they are, well, it's just not fair. Doesn't God know my frame? Doesn't he know that I'm feeble? Yes, he does. Of course he does. He's not He's not either wringing his hands in heaven and saying, I don't know what I'm going to do. Nor is he saying, i got to get them to knuckle under. i got to teach them a bunch of lessons with glee. Not at all. But he does say, I'm on a relentless quest to ensure that you are Steadfast, that you are persevering, that you have stalwart endurance. And how far will he go at that? Here's what it says and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, not perfect in every situation. It's a word that speaks of maturity, progressing maturity. So that the goal is that you will continue to be steadfastly maturing and complete, lacking in a thousand things. Is that what it says? Lacking in what? Nothing. Nothing. Anybody want to sign up for that? Anybody want to be steadfast, enduring, persevering, in such a way that I am progressively maturing, being ultimately completed in Christ, lacking nothing? I say with hushed tones, yeah, I think I want to sign up for that. Well, it's going to include, Lance, in your case, the death of your spouse. Now, one has to think long and hard before accepting something like that. But the more you're growing, the more you're maturing, the more you see God's plan for the ages, for your sanctification, your steadfastness, you can say something like this, not my will, but yours be done. I'll guarantee you that if I knew on March 30th of 2020 at 440 what the Lord himself knows, I would say, of course. Of course. And one of those is this, would I want my dear wife and her little bitty body continue to suffer? Plus, don't forget that she was under that trial. And she was being made steadfast, and she was progressively maturing. And she wanted to be herself complete, lacking in nothing. Would I not want that for her? What kind of sadistic person would I be if I didn't want her to enjoy the glories of eternity with Christ? Oh, perhaps sometimes we turn a trial into a temptation because we say, but she's leaving me. What am I going to do? Why don't you see what my needs are before you do something like that? Instead of, I am so grateful that even though this trial came into my life, it is a trial that she successfully passed. She was a very, very godly woman. Anyone who knew her would say, it's obvious that she's further along than him. <laughs> he needs more of the steadfastness to come into his life. She's ready. In fact, just to be a little bit more transparent with you in those days when the elders of my church said, stay home, take care of her, spend as much time with, your, with her as you possibly can. And at one point, she and I decided, let's, let's watch the little children's version of Pilgrim's Progress, and let's study the Ligonier Ministries teaching by Derek Thomas, and so we just sat in our chairs, and in those evening times, we would read Pilgrim's Progress, we could watch the movie, and we could do our study together. And one of those nights, I realized something. Christian, in part one of Pilgrim's Progress, his name being Christian, which, of course, was just none other than John Bunyan, the Puritan himself, was trying to get to the celestial city, heaven. And so I thought, well, that might be emblematic of me because part two of Pilgrim's Progress, which sometimes people don't even know there is a part two in Pilgrim's Progress that John Bunyan himself wrote, there are other spurious versions, but only the one that he wrote to actually correct the spurious versions included not Pilgrim's journey to the celestial city, but his wife. His name was Christian, her name was Christiana. And John Bunyan in real life had a marriage and had four children, and then there was the death of a spouse, his wife. We don't know anything about it. History apparently has not yet been able to uncover who was she, when did she die, what happened? We don't know. But John Bunyan himself in real life actually remarried. And Christiana was his second wife and she devoted herself to love him and to take care of his four children. And when John Bunyan went first to the celestial city, which of course was emblematic that he himself would die, Christiana took the journey herself with the four boys. And at one night, I realized the woman who is to my right is Christiana. And she's taking care of the eight boys and girls, my eight children. And she did that for all of the years of our marriage. And I was watching myself the unfolding of a real truth. There's Christiana, my wife, who is taking care of me and my people, and she's going to the celestial city. And I realized, this is a trial. This is a trial of epic proportions. And it's for my steadfastness and for my completion and for hers as well. I can understand that. You can understand that. We can grow from that. We can grow from this trial. And maybe someone's gonna say, yes, but I need wisdom. I need the sufficient Scripture. I I need God to to give me more of His Word and more of the understanding of these things. Well, that's exactly what James says. Look at verse 5. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. Wisdom. By the way, this is... In the text of James 1, this is not some kind of ethereal wisdom that's sort of like the, out in the, in the universe somewhere. Like, hey, there's a bunch of wisdom in God's Word, but I'm asking God for the wisdom about a specific situation like the death of my wife or, or some other tragedy or issue or trial in my life. And so I'm sort of asking for some uh, secret knowledge of wisdom out there that can tell me about my specific situation. That's not what that means. Here's what it means. For any of you who lacks wisdom, God's Word sufficiently has it. It's the wisdom from God's Word. It's the wisdom of God's truth. And do you know that that is exactly what our brother in the last series of exhortations to us told us? from Ephesians chapter 1 turn over to Ephesians chapter 1 and and you'll see it this is this is the wisdom that James is referring to Ephesians chapter 1 this is this is the wisdom that we're talking about in Ephesians chapter 1 verse 7 In Him, in Christ, we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of His grace. Notice this, which He lavished upon us in all, what? Wisdom and insight. That's the wisdom that we're talking about, my friends. It's the wisdom of the Word. It's knowing your Bible when trials come. It's knowing how to respond when those trials are seemingly overtaking you. It's the wisdom of God's Word. You don't have to look for something ethereal in the cosmos. You have to know the Word. That's how you address a trial. That's how you become steadfast. You go to God's Word. You most certainly go to His Word. And you know it like the back of your hand And it's not just in Ephesians. Look in Philippians chapter 1. These are these great prayers of the Apostle Paul. You and I could spend the rest of our lives just studying the prayers of Paul and be a great prayer warrior. Just those. Notice what he says. He says in Philippians chapter 1, verse 8, "'For God is my witness, how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus,' And here's his prayer for the Philippian believers, and it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with, here it is, knowledge and all discernment. Those are synonyms of God's Word. Knowledge, wisdom, discernment, those are all synonymous with the truth of God's Word. And and it doesn't stop there. Look at the next one, Colossians chapter 1. This is again a Pauline prayer. He says in chapter 1 verse 9, "...and so from the day we heard," Colossians 1 9, "...we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of His will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding." You see how Paul is just stacking up all kinds of synonymous words that tell us that the wisdom of God is already available to us. It's in the Word. It's in the sufficient Word. This is is what he's saying. And if you don't think James knows that from those passages, he's written his own. Look at what he says at the end of James chapter 1. Verse 22, but be doers of the what? Word. The word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. If you're just a hearer of the word and not a doer, you're like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror, for he looks at himself and goes away at once forgetting what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. And look at chapter 3. He says in verse 13 of James chapter 3, Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. Where do I get such wisdom? You don't get it by looking around. You get it by looking in the Word. And he even speaks about a different kind of wisdom. Look at verse 15. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but earthly and unspiritual. What kind of wisdom is that? Verse 14 tells us. Bitter jealousy, selfish ambition, boasting, and being false to the truth. Oh, but if you have the wisdom from above, according to verse 16, the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. I mean, isn't it no, no small wonder then that the Apostle Paul tells the, First Thessalonians, uh, the the Thessalonians, in First Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 27, as he's closing that, the next to the last verse, he says, "I urge you, I adjure you, I commend you to read this letter to the brothers and sisters." Why does he say that? Why does he say? I urge you, I commend you. I consign you to an oath that you will have this letter read. Because the Thessalonian church was a new church. And it was in a pagan territory. And the gospels hadn't even been written yet. And they were not filled with a Jewish population so that they could have known even something from the Old Testament. So they didn't have the Old Testament or very few of them. They didn't have the gospel accounts. There was only one Pauline letter that was probably written before 1 Thessalonians. It may have been Galatians or it could have been 1 Thessalonians itself. And they had nothing else but. And when that letter was read to them, I'll bet you they said something like this, Read it again. Read it again. But but, but it's only five chapters. Read it again. It's the wisdom from above. It's divine revelation. You see, my friends, the wisdom that you and I need to ask for according to James chapter 1, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all, and he doesn't reproach them, he doesn't find fault with them, it will be, here's the promise, it will be given him if he asks in faith maybe that's part of the problem with people who go from a trial to a temptation because they're not expressing faith well my time is basically gone which means I've got two more And I'm continuing. (laughs) And I'll tell you why. Because those two probably give us the most encouragement of all. You say, the third one that you mentioned? Desires? You know what? That same word, desires, is also a Greek word, that can have either a negative context or a positive one. The positive context, I'll give you one example for our time. The positive example of that word, which by the way is epithumia. Epi, the little addition on the front of the word, is meant to be an intensifier. It intensifies the word itself. And the second part of that word Thumia is actually from a word thumos, which actually means anger. And this idea of a a positive epithumia is 1 Timothy 3, verse 1. If a man aspires to the office of the eldership, it is a fine work, a noble task that he, here's our word, desires to do. That's positive. That's in a positive context. And epithumia is that word that's used here in James 1, but it's not positive. Look at James chapter 1. Notice what it says in verse 14. But each person is tempted. Remember, he's being solicited to do evil. And when he is, the Bible says here, he is lured and enticed by his own what? That's epithumia. That's the word. He's lured and enticed, and it doesn't say here, by that old arch enemy, Satan. Now, Satan is mentioned in James, and it's in chapter 4, and it's resist the devil and he will flee. Satan is not mentioned here in chapter 1. So where's that desire coming from? right there, right in the human heart. It's a negative context. And sometimes when we are going through temptations, it is because the Bible says we are lured just like that fish, just like that bait, that bait and switch. I thought it was a good thing to do. I wanted it. I wanted it so desperately. I come from Arkansas. That's my home state. And I did a lot of fishing when I was growing up. And I thought to myself, those stupid fish. You don't even know what's going to happen to you. It looks so good, that bait. I am going to have a feast of epic proportions. And as soon as he is lured and enticed by the bait because of his desires, Wham! He's my dinner now. You see, that is the work of Satan. Sure it is. But since he's not mentioned here, it's sometimes what we do. We respond because we want what we want. And we are lured and enticed by our own And you could actually legitimately translate this epithemia because it's a negative context, by our own lusts. And then when this lust, verse 15, is conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it's fully grown, brings forth death. Do you see that he's using the analogy of the birthing process? It's, It's a person, when he's tempted to have a conception. And the conception gives birth to the actual sin itself. You see, the lust comes first, the desire comes first, and then it gives birth to full-blown sin. And sin, when it's full-blown, when it's fully grown, it brings forth death. You see, that's what happens to all of us. Myself, even as the preacher included, when... There are times when I want something so badly, I'll blame anybody for it. I'll want what I want, and when I don't get it, I'm mad as a hornet. And if I reevaluate things God's way, I say, that wasn't a noble desire. That was a lustful desire for what I want and not what you want. And that desire brings forth death. No wonder he says in verse 16, do not be deceived, beloved brethren. Don't be deceived. You say, well, is anybody gonna give us a process of this? You've talked about a lot of stuff. Well, what do we do? What's the practicality of this? Go back to verse 2, and we'll close. The fourth word, tests. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials, trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing, do you see it there? Your your translation may say the proving, the proving ground, the testing ground, the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. Testing. Testing. Oh, that's an important word. That's so important. That word test, testing there, that word is the word dokimos. So I've given you that, that first Greek word, that parasmos. Then I've given you that second one that talks about what you and I just mentioned. And now this third word, dokimos. And do you know what dokimos is? Dokimos comes from the world of the artisan the artisan, the, the blacksmith, the, the person who works with precious metals. And the intensity, the fiery heat of the furnace is that word and that process. And, and what happens is that when that, that fiery furnace is turned up to its most intense, intense heating apparatus, And then those precious stones, the gold, the silver, they're put into the furnace for the purpose of allowing all the dross to be burned away. So that when those precious things are removed, you and I come forth as gold. All the impurities have been burned away. That's that's our word there. And, And that means that the testing of your faith is going to be assumable by way of fiery adversity. It's going to happen. It's a guilt edge guarantee. It's God's way. That, that trial that I'm not only thinking back almost seven years to is still with me today. It's a trial. Lance, are you going to be faithful? Are you going to trust me? Are you going to allow me to place your life into the fiery furnace of adversity so that you could come forth as a steadfast, golden child of mine? Are you going to submit to it? Are you going to say, no? Are you going to say, no, sometimes? Because you think that the heat is too much you think that the process is not as fair as it ought to be. Or the timing. The timing just stinks on this, Lord. Don't, don't, don't do it. I, no, not now. Not now. I've got so many other things going on. But wait a minute. You're perfect. You know everything. You, you, you know me better than I know myself. How can I be jousting verbally with you? You're the Lord God of the universe. Who am I? What am I thinking? Of course I'll submit. Of course I will. Because you've asked me by faith to go under the dachimas, the fiery adversity, so that you're proving steadfastness and endurance. Okay, Lord, I by faith will do that because you've asked and because you are perfect and loving and gracious, I will submit to your will, not mine. And I admit to you, there are times when I go home, I live alone in my house, and in the night watches, I say, Lord, I can't do this anymore. Please help me. Please give me a a resolve, a commitment to trust you by faith. And in those night watches, as I meditate on James chapter 1, he meets me in the night watches. And he says, I'm here for you. Pray to me and allow me to bring you forth as gold. We can and we must, my friends. Let's trust him for it, shall we? Bow your heads with me as we pray. Father, this is the way of your plan and purpose. We must respond. We must be doing what you say as you say it, and we must trust you by faith. Thank you for trials. Deliver us from temptations. Take away our lustful desires and put us in the fiery furnace of adversity so that we come forth as gold. It is your plan. We submit to it by faith, and we ask you to make us steadfast, enduring. We love you. We trust you. In the name of your Son, who gave his all for us, we ask it.
0: Amen. You have been listening to Baltimore Bible Church. To hear other messages or to find out about upcoming events and where we meet for weekly church services, please visit us online at www.baltimorebiblechurch.org. Baltimore Bible Church reserves all copyright protection under applicable law. Our copyright policy is available on our website and includes instructions for and limitations on duplicating all printed media, CDs, and digital files.